Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello, folks and friends, newcomers and old listeners. Welcome to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am very honored today to bring you an interview with um, one of the most quietly influential musicians to ever grace the stage and recording studio, Mr. Norman Blake. I've never had the chance to meet Norman face to face, but I've listened to so much of his music that I feel like I kind of know the guy. Um, I first heard him when I was going to Berkeley College of Music way back in the dark ages. And um, I was there at the same time as Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch. And uh, I remember going on a trip and Dave Rawlings was in front of me in the bus. And and I'd never really been exposed to bluegrass being a young Canadian whippersnapper before. And um, Dave, I remember he was sitting in front of me in the bus and turned around with his Sony Walkman and handed me his Walkman because he kind of knew the stuff that I was into. And I was into slide guitar and all this stuff. And And Dave said, here, man, check this out. And he had a cassette tape of the first Blake and Rice album. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget it. That was really my first kind of experience with listening to fiddle tunes played on the guitar and and bluegrass in general. And it was a real mind blower and mind opener. And I will never forget that. Norman doesn't do a ton of interviews these days, so I was thrilled that he agreed to speak with me from his home in Rising Fawn, Georgia. I can't tell you what a huge influence he's had on me as a musician, from his solo records as a multi-instrumentalist, to his flat-picking masterpiece collaborations with Tony Rice and the John Hartford Aeroplane Band, to his session work with Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan, not to mention his lifelong duo with his wife Nancy Blake. Norman has cropped up so many times on my turntable, he almost seems larger than life. 
He's just released a new album of original songs, rags, flat-picking gems, and fiddle tunes that ranks up there with anything he's ever done. It's called Brushwood Songs and Stories, and I highly recommend picking it up. Norman doesn't tour anymore. I believe he's 78 years old now. So he's enjoying some well-deserved retirement from the road. But thankfully, he felt inclined to share his new music and some stories with us. So, of course, I jumped at this chance. From his early days in the Dixieland Drifters, through his illustrious session career that runs the gamut from early Johnny Cash to the Grammy-winning Robert Plant, Alison Krauss album from a few years back, Raising Sand, to his more recent work on soundtracks for movies like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and Cold Mountain, done with T-Bone Burnett, among many others, we managed to touch on it all. So thank you again to everybody for uh, listening out there and tuning in. As always, you can connect with me and the show at www.stevedawson.ca. You can make comments there, and if you feel inclined to contribute with a donation, that is uh, the way that we keep this show going. Um, Also, if you haven't done so yet, please head over to iTunes, where you can subscribe to the podcast for free, and that really helps with getting the word out there for the show, so we'd appreciate that. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with the legend himself, Norman Blake. Hi, is that uh, Norman? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Whereabouts are you these days? Like, I know you've, you live in Georgia. Um, is that somewhere? Rising Fawn, Georgia. Rising Fawn. Is that somewhere you've lived yeah. for a long time? Uh, yeah, we've lived here 40 years on this particular place, and it's about three and a half miles from where I was raised. So, you know. Oh, no yeah, kidding. It's, you it's haven't... the home area. You haven't strayed far. That's cool. So I wanted to start off maybe talking about your new record, um, Brushwood Songs and Stories, which was uh, just released. Yeah, it's an amazing collection of songs. And They sent you a copy. Yes, they did. They did. I, I oh, got okay. that. Okay, so you're, from, you're familiar there. Yeah. I am. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, your guitar playing is just classic Norman Blake right from the first song and um, has all the elements of finger style and flat picking that I, that I love about your records. I'm just wondering what makes you want to make a new record these days. Like, um, are you are you write, are you writing a lot? Uh, what what brings on the whole process for you? Uh, well, I had made the one before this, uh, Woodwire and Words, and I don't know if you're familiar with that one. I am indeed. Well, this was just sort of a continuation of uh, of that. Basically, uh, I was still writing some things and. Uh, I just decided that I had all those, and uh, I might not want to inflict myself much further on the public on full-scale records, so I just said, well, I'll record all these and uh, see how it feels after that. Uh huh. Do you record all this stuff at home, or do you go into a studio? I go into a studio about 35 miles from here. Uh, it's very handy. It's at Fort Payne, Alabama. Okay. It's called Cook Sound Studios, which is a studio that's owned by Jeff Cook of the Alabama group. Oh, okay. And so you're probably old pals with him. 
No, not really. No, oh, I hardly okay. know the man. Okay. <laughs> he just, he's hardly there or uh-huh. around. Uh, it's on Lookout Mountain from Fort Payne, Alabama. And uh, he has a house engineer that I get along well with and like, uh, uh-huh. David Hammonds. And uh, so, no, no, I've, I've only seen Jeff a couple of times there briefly. Okay. Tell me about the process of making records for you these days. Is it... Um, Really, do you try and keep it really simple? I mean, it comes across as very direct and simple, but do you still do any experimenting with with the tone of your guitar and and stuff like that, or do you just? Basically... Oh, I'm all, I'm always doing that with different guitars, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but I basically try to keep it simple. Nobody makes records much anymore, you know, with just a guitar and a singer or something. Yeah. And I don't know. I've I have worked a lot that way or worked in small combinations like duets with my wife and uh, yeah. maybe a trio or quartet at the most. You know, four people is a big group to me. So Yeah, yeah I understand that. Yeah, What's the length process involved for making a record like this that's, uh, you know, 18, 19 songs, I think? Um, do you do it quickly in a couple of days or do you spread it out over a few months? Or how I, I usually do usually do the basic thing in, in two days. Okay. And then then I maybe go back in and do a couple of things over or something, you know, that I feel I could do differently or better yeah. or something. But basic, the basic thing is done in about usually in two days with a little little added tweaking then later, you know, maybe a cut or two. Did you do any overdubbing on this record, or is it all? I didn't notice only any, a but... couple of only a couple of things. Uh, I don't do much of that. Um, as a rule, I, I think I did a fiddle overdub, and okay. I did a, did a slide guitar overdub and a uh, an extra guitar part on one. So I think actually three things out of the 19 have a, have a instrumental overdub. Instrumentally for you these days, like, you know, I know, I know you're a wonderful dobro player and obviously guitar player, mandolin player, fiddle player. Um, the guitar takes front and center... Uh, on this new record, is that for the reason that you're um, currently in guitar mode, or is it just the one instrument that's really kind of uh, jumping out to you these days? Well, it's the one thing for doing the kind of stuff that I'm doing there, you know, just the guitar is the accompaniment. Yeah, I don't feel the need to make instrumental records at this point in time. I've done a lot of instrumental work, you know, recordings and things over the years, and um, I just sort of do it on this last couple of records have been basically on a singer songwriter basis, I guess you yeah. would say. Yeah, it comes across that way. So I'm wondering, like, on a song like um, How the Weary World Wears Away, it's obviously <laughs> like a traditional style song, but with kind of a contemporary chorus and, and obviously contemporary concerns about the state of the world and that kind of a message. How important is it to you to blend the traditional with things that are important to you now? Uh, I just know that that's the way that it's that some of these things came out uh-huh. uh that was just what i wrote in other words that was just the way it happened i don't know that i had a, a particular thing in mind it just if i start writing it just comes out a certain way and nancy of course was involved in that one and that was based i got the idea from her for that particular piece uh, something she said how the weary world wears away with Nancy, do you guys co-write these songs? Like, do you, does she write lyrics with you and stuff? 
Uh, she has, yes, she has. And, and sometimes, you know, like I get ideas or she got you know, something like in that line or, you know, yeah. it just varies. It's never a, a usual process. Uh-huh. What about a tune like the Bunk Johnson song? Um, that's got some great ragtime picking in it. Like I, I hear some, you know, Mississippi John Hurt, but also uh, some Merle Travis and things like that. Can you tell me a bit about the influence of old time jazz on your playing? Uh, I like old-fashioned jazz. Uh, I even like uh, up the line into what they call, you know, into bebop. I I can listen to bebop uh-huh. jazz, but I don't go past that. Swing doesn't do anything for me. Okay. And and, and things past that. But but the the uh, era up into the fifties of yeah. jazz, uh-huh. and in particular though the nineteen twenties and thirties jazz sure. is more what I actually probably relate to more in my own playing. Yeah, yeah, I can hear that. What kind of bebop is it that you would that you would listen to if you were going to listen to some kind of? That kind oh, of I like like uh, saxophone type. You know where they have a, a saxophone. Charlie, kind of Charlie drum, Parker they, or something like that. Charlie Parker, yeah. yeah or, yeah, people like that. Stan Getz, uh, Lester Young. Lester Young, right. sure, yeah. And so Bunk Johnson would be an influence as well, like more from the New Orleans old old time jazz. Yeah, thing. yeah, that that, and then the, the, just the history of uh, a little bit of his life. You know, like he was just a laborer in the rice mill and yeah. fields, lost his teeth and everything. You know, and uh, I think his picture to some of the pictures I've seen with a barred trumpet, you know, yeah. didn't, didn't even have a horn of his own at that point, you know. Uh-huh. Were you a, were you a big record collector as a kid? Uh, I wasn't. When I started out, I wasn't into collecting, but I was very much influenced in country music by uh, early 78 records, you know, mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Yeah, very much so. Roy Acuff was one of the biggest influences yeah on me those records bluegrass i kind of got in i heard got into a little later down the line but roy Acuff was the was the primary influence in the blue sky boys uh, the monroe brothers uh-huh. and the carter family and the skillet liquors those were the main yeah I mean, chuck wagon gang the gospels group out of texas the uh-huh. original chuck wagon gang yeah, the skillet liquors. So, Gid Tanner, he was from Georgia too, right? Did you ever see him? Yeah, yeah, De- yeah, Decula, I believe, Decula, Georgia. Did you ever get a chance to see the skillet liquors in action? Oh no, no, they were before my time. Okay, they were started in the nineteen twenties, and but they they sort of they sort of continued on, didn't they, up and through the fifties? Oh 60s? yeah, they went on like his son Gordon Tanner, and okay. yeah, I think they still. Have descendants in that family that play. Yeah, you I know, think so too. Yeah, have a have a a group you know called the Skillet Liquors of some incarnation of it still today. Yeah. Yeah. What about Riley Pocket? Was he like the guitar player from the Skillet Liquors? Were you into like was guitar kind of something that you were interested in? Very much yeah. so. Yeah. He yeah he's had an influence on my backup of of that kind of music. Yeah. Him and Maybell Carter uh-huh. were two big influences on me. Yeah, the Carters were everywhere, I guess, back then. Like, did you listen to them on the radio? Or oh yeah, their their records were very prevalent out in the country. You know, you saw a lot of Carter family recordings. Out yeah, there. could you tell me a, a bit about so your guitar influences? Obviously, coming from from people like Riley Puckett and Maybell Carter. Who are some other ones? Like I hear on um, what's the 
the tune on the new record, Generic Rag. Um, yeah. I, you know, I hear uh, all that stuff, plus uh, Mississippi John Hurt. Were, were some of the blues guys' influences on you as well, or were you not hearing that music at that point? Not not early on, they weren't uh, uh-huh. so much, no. Uh, I, I heard a, every once in a while I would hear something, but it was not a big influence. It was more country. Yeah. And, of course, what you're saying there, John Hurt, is, is a later influence on me. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I liked his playing very much. And, of course, uh, Merle Travis was always. But I never considered myself a real Travis picker. I think I relate more over to the black side of it. I don't keep a okay. a steady thing like Travis and Chet Atkins and people like that later on kept a real steady beat going. Uh-huh. And where I think that some of the black thing is a little more improvised. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Out. Right, yeah. On On that song, Generic Rag, you've got some of those like hanging open strings that that Merle Travis was really into. So I can hear that for sure in in your playing, whether it's direct or indirect. And I I used to make records and do songs and do a thing and had everything that I did. Fingerstyle was being more of a folky vein, and I used picks like I did when I played the dobro, you know. But then I found in later years, I found that there was so much more I could do just to leave the picks aside and do it. But I never was comfortable doing it on the stage like that bare finger, as okay. I called it. Because, you know, it was not as much definition and on a sound system. Yeah. It'd have to be a killer for me to feel comfortable with it. But in a studio where I can just sit down in front of a microphone, uh-huh. you know, I, I can do it that way and, and get into it, you know. Yeah, for sure. So when you but were it's done with no picks, yeah, yeah, it's a huge difference. I'm a guitar player too, and and I have I sort of have struggled with that same thing, and I used finger picks for a while, but I I've always kind of gone back to my fingers as well. So I can I can relate. Well, I had had some friend John Arnold, the guitar maker. He always used to, he called it uh, like when you don't use picks, you know, black thumb. You know, that's uh-huh. most of the black players didn't use picks. Okay. You get that real meaty sound out of the thumb, you know. Yeah. That's what you do not ever get with a thumb pick. Yeah, no kidding. It's very defined and, and staccato yeah. kind of, right? Yeah, it gets too defined to be, it starts to sounding more white when you use a <laughs> Um So tell me about, like, when you were starting out, like, you're such a multi-instrumentalist as well. Um what was the main, were you first and foremost a guitar player? Or were you kind of playing like mandolin more in the early days? I played guitar first. Okay. Played guitar and mandolin second uh-huh. and uh, fiddle, I think third and probably or along at the same time I started playing dobro then in there at the time I was playing mandolin and fiddle. I think I also got into the, the dobro pretty early on there uh-huh. from the A-Cup records and things. Okay, so you heard you heard the dobro on those records. It, it, yeah, that's what that's where the dobro uh, came into my. Uh, I didn't know what it was, uh-huh. you know, and I didn't know what it was till we got to Knoxville. We were playing a little group we had playing on WNOX, and uh, there were dobro players on the sh- there were two dobro players on that show. One that was uh, very influential, played with a lot of people. Uh, Speedy cries, George cries, but they called him Speedy. Speedy Cries. Yeah, he played with, I think he played with, I don't know if he played with Wilmley and Stoney at some point, but he played with Molly O'Day and various people, you know, Carl Butler of early records, I think he was on. Uh-huh. And um, then he, he was playing in a group called the Green County Boys on WNOX 
1953 when we started playing up there some kids and uh, uh, that group was Jack Shelton and the Green County Boys. Jack Shelton, uh, the Shelton brothers, Curly and Jack, and uh, they had he had played with Wade Maynard and uh, then they had uh, Fred Smith who played guitar also with Jack and Fred played guitar and Benny Sims played the fiddle. He used uh-huh. to be Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs. Okay, yeah. And then Speedy was on the dobro. Okay. And that was the Green County Boys. I don't think they ever recorded, but they were live on the radio there, and his playing had big influence on me. So when you say they were live on the radio, was that like a daily thing? They would be on every day at a certain time? They were doing a thing called the Midday Merry-Go-Round on WNOX, and okay. then a thing on Saturday night that we were on called the Tennessee Barn Dance. Lowell Blanchard was the MC of that particular show for years. Okay. And kind of ran the, the whole thing, you know. And was that a live thing happening that was being broadcast on the radio? Yeah, that was happening before a small audience, yeah. Okay. Um, and so I, I know you were in a band called the Dixieland Drifters. Was that the band? That was the band. Yeah. Okay. And you're playing mandolin in that band, right? Yeah, I was playing mandolin in that group. And then that's where I really got, when I saw what a dobro really was. You know, okay. I mean, it's it's so different from playing guitar. It's more like playing banjo almost. Um, uh, was it something that you were really taken with right away? Yeah, yeah. I I wasn't, you know, as serious with a guitar at that point. I played it. Uh-huh. It was the first thing I ever played. But then I got more serious about the mandolin and then the dobro also. Uh-huh. Uh, my guitar playing, I think, more gradually evolved over the years. Okay. You know, to, to the main thing that I did. Right, right. With the Dixieland Drifters, were you touring around a lot, or were you just kind of going from where you lived in Georgia up to... No, we just went We just went from home. We did a few shows around schoolhouse shows, you know, around the area and uh-huh. things like that. But no, we weren't. We were just kids, you know, we yeah. trying to get started and all that. So uh, we weren't really, you know, active professionals at that point, no. Um, I dug out a, a single called The Trot that you did with them. That's, that's, uh, it's so cool, man. Uh, so like, how did that, was that one of those radio broadcasts or was that, were you in a recording studio for that session? That's a studio recording. Uh, that was done at, uh, in Nashville down on, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if I want to say third Avenue, second or third Avenue, uh, Murray Nash, uh-huh. uh, who was, uh, uh, an A and R man had been an A and R man for MGM and Mercury, and all that, and had, had kind of, I guess, fallen from some graces in the business, and had a studio of his own, uh-huh. and was recording, and uh, that label was his, the BB label, and everything, and we were so we did those in Nashville. And at that point, were you kind of thinking about um, Nashville as somewhere where you'd want to go to become a professional player, or was that not really something you were thinking about? Well, yet? we we had aspirations at that point. You know, we'd gotten we were on television then in the mid fifties down in Rome, Georgia, oh. and then so we had turned more professional, and the personnel in the group had changed some. And uh, I was playing dobro by that point in the group uh-huh. primarily, and. Uh, so we had aspirations, you know, to try to do something in the music business. And so that was our foray into Nashville right there was through Murray Nash. Okay. So that's pretty exciting. 
Yeah. When you say you, you were on TV, was that like a, again, a regular kind of thing where you were playing like a barn dance kind of thing? Yeah, we were doing a Saturday night thing on a, on a television station in Rome, Georgia. Yeah, a Saturday night barn dance type show with various people on it. And it would have been broadcast locally rather than a big national show? Yeah, it was, it was local, yeah, local television, yeah, in the Georgia area, North Georgia area. Okay, cool. And did the recordings you did at that point, did they um, help your career at all? Or like, wh- where did they lead to exactly? Oh, I don't know. We, uh, we went on to, uh, went on over to Sun Records uh-huh. and recorded. Jack Clement was the, a, was the recording engineer in really? charge over there. And we went over there, and Jack recorded us two or three, four days over there. Uh-huh. And uh, oh, this is the this is was, the sorry, this is the Sun Records in Nashville, not the Memphis one. No, this is the Memphis one. Oh, it is. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, we went to the. I, I don't guess they had a, a a Nashville outlet at that point. This the mid fifties. Okay. So we we went to Sun, and Jack recorded us three or four days, and. Uh, uh, none of it was commercially released. Uh, there was four tracks that were released later on Bear Family Records on a box set called Sun the Country Years uh, of the Dixieland Drifters. And uh, they recorded a lot of people that they didn't end up releasing, you know. And we, we did our little stint there at Sun. And uh, uh-huh. Jack tried to kind of fuse us a little bit, you know, yeah. by adding drums and piano i think to what we were doing okay but i never got involved with sun in in nashville till much later on uh in 1962 i did an album with bob johnson yeah um, the banjo player and we did that at sam phillips nashville studio okay so it was up and running at that point yeah, that was in by 1962, yeah. And I don't that... know when he actually got that up and running, but that's when we recorded. I was in the Army at that time, and to come home, and we did a record called Twelve Shades of Bluegrass. Okay. Um, and was Sam Phillips involved in that session? Mm, I don't think, no, no. We just did it in his studio. We okay. did it for uh, Al Gallico, okay. a New York publisher. We did it on... I can't think of the label. It's more of a rock and roll label. Uh-huh. Um, I can't call it right now. It may surface, but uh, he was the. We were basically doing it for him. Okay. I think. So at this point, like you're back from um, from the army. Where where were you? you were stationed outside of North America, right? I was stationed in the Panama Canal zone. And what were you doing there? I was in the infantry. I was a radio operator and a. General Dogface Soldier. Wow. And, I'm, I'm uh, a trained jungle killer. <laughs> and were you playing music in the Army, too? Yes. Okay. And was, so at this point, like, bluegrass must have been a, a thing for you. Like, were you, were you digging in and finding out, like, had you started to hear Bill Monroe and, and, and those kind of guys at this point? Yeah, we're more aware of of, of that at at that point, certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a band in, in there, we... We entertained a lot of the officers' clubs and things like that and had special duty. Yeah. I mostly played fiddle in that band, but I had a banjo player and a guitar and a, and a bass fiddle. Okay. So we had a small bluegrass-type group, I guess you would say. Uh-huh. And uh, do you remember 
hearing Bill Monroe and, and the impact that that had on you? Yeah, I used to listen at him on, early on the Opry, you know, uh-huh. on the Grand Ole Opry. We'd hear Roy Acuff and Bill Monroe. This, well, those were my favorites. I didn't care about a lot of the people, but yeah. Bill Monroe and Acuff and Sam and Kurt McGee and the old, all the old-time bands and, yeah. uh, you know, things like that was what I was more into. I wasn't as much into the some of the later uh, more hardcore country acts that came along, you uh-huh. know, as I was those more traditional-oriented acts. Now, I, I know you ended up playing some with Bill Monroe. I don't know how officially, but I mean, I've definitely seen and heard some things of you playing with him. How, how did that come about, and how exciting was that for you? Well, we got to be friends with him, uh, and uh, would go over to his farm and uh, play James Bryan that fiddled with us, Nancy and I and James Bryan, and Larry Sledge, a mandolin player that used to play some with us, who was also a friend of Bill's, and we'd go over there and play tunes, you know, and things like that. And then uh, when Bill made his record there, when he got sick, he made the record Masters of Bluegrass. It was an instrumental record, mostly, and um, I played on four tracks on that record with him, four, four cuts. What was that like being being in Bill Monroe's band for you? Well, that was the closest I ever came. I never toured with him or anything. Yeah. Just did those recordings, but it was quite a quite a, a, a thing, you know. It was yeah. Definitely a a uh, prestigious and a thrilling thing. Uh huh. Also, another guy um, that you did some playing with um, back in the day and and up through your career was Doc Watson. I'm just curious how you first met Doc and uh, what you thought of him as a player and a, a musician. I'm trying to think when I did meet Doc first. Uh, I think the, I want to safely say that the first time I met Doc was when uh, Nancy and I were going out to uh, Winfield, Kansas, uh-huh. and playing uh, the the, uh, the uh, flat picking thing out there, the Walnut Valley flat picking contest and show that they had festival they had out there okay and i, I met doc there i believe the first time uh-huh. uh, and yeah i played on he and dan Crary and myself we played on stage uh you know out there you know like special sets you know just the yep. three of us and and did you guys click right away like <clears throat> you you, pro- you must have known a lot of the same tunes and stuff like it was it an easy process to to jump in and we play were just music with basically him? playing fiddle music you know playing fiddle tunes and stuff yeah, yeah just pretty standard stuff and uh all that it just was the deal it was a guitar festival so right. you know get three guitar players up on stage <laughs> that had some name recognition and yeah all that did you listen to his records at all too like you guys were basically contemporaries really like yeah i listened to doc uh yeah in the, in the when he had first started recording, I hadn't heard him, and uh, I was had gotten out of the army and I was teaching guitar a little bit, uh-huh. and I had a student who said, "Had I heard Doc Watson?" And I said, "No, I had not. I had not I had not heard Clarence White. I had mm-hmm. not heard Doc Watson." And uh, they brought me some Doc Watson records, and I listened to them. That was my introduction on record okay. to him. Yeah. What was the process with you coming to Nashville? Um, obviously, you were, um, you know, became a, a quite a force in the session, doing recordings and things like that, which I'd like to ask you some stuff about. But, but did you move up 
to Nashville as a as a career move at some point, or did you just kind of end up here with bands and stuff? I, I did not move to Nashville till till nineteen and sixty nine. Oh, okay. I started recording in sixty three when yeah. I got out of the army yeah. with Johnny Cash. Okay, and that led to my moving over in sixty nine to be involved in his television show. So the Johnny Cash gig, did you, um, like, how did that come about in the first place? Was he somebody that you had met and played with a little bit or, or what was your meeting with him? Well, I had, I had worked with June Carter Yep. on some local shows and things that she'd come down to this area and they'd pick up a band and I would, had through an agent that I knew down here, I'd gotten involved in playing on some shows that she came down and did and then I went off to the army and my friend Bob Johnson that I spoke of earlier the banjo player he had uh, while I was in the army then he had become involved through her with Johnny Cash uh-huh. and then when I got out of the army I, he said do you, would you like to ride over to Nashville to a cash session and I said sure I wasn't doing anything so I <laughs> rode over with him yeah. And when we went in the studio, she immediately says to John, she says, John, this is Norman Blake. I've told you about him, that he plays lots of things. He plays the dobro. And uh, he said to me, he never heard me play a note. He said to me, he says, well, I've been wanting to, to use a dobro with the mariachi trumpets. And he says, if you can get one, borrow one you don't have, I didn't have one with me he says you can borrow one I'll use you tomorrow and uh, so that's how I started playing with him and worked with him up until the time he died off and on you know for 40 odd years yeah so would that have been like the ring of fire session it was after that uh, okay. the first thing I recorded with him was um, bad news travels like wildfire and understand your Understand Your Man, I think, were the first two things. That, but Bad News, Travels Like Wildfire was the first cut that I ever made with him. I had the trumpets and everything. And um, what else do you remember about that session? Like, was it uh, was it fairly live, and were you in the in the room with him and stuff? Or how were those Oh, done? yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was all done pretty live back then. We were at Columbia over there on, yep. in Nashville, the old Columbia studio. And... Uh, the big one, I don't know. Things change around. I'm not up into what's going on in Nashville anymore, but it was the main big Columbia studio. Uh, I guess that was on 16th or 17th. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, it's still there. Yeah. For those kind of s- sessions with those songs, were you just in there for a day or were they done uh, over a, a period of time? Sometimes we would record two or three days. Yeah. I'm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Curious about your your instruments. Um, I wonder if you might talk about those um, uh, specifically, like with your guitars. Um, I don't know how picky you are these days, but um, I would imagine the D eighteen is a is a big part of your arsenal. Um, how important is is the kind of guitar to what you play as a as an instrumentalist? Well, I have to break your bubble there. I haven't played a dreadnought guitar in years. Oh, really? Okay. I don't own a D eighteen. I don't own a dreadnought Martin. Uh, did, back uh, back in those days, were you playing Martins though? I played Martins a lot. Yeah, and it did play D eighteens and D twenty eights. Yeah, but I haven't played one in years. What's your but, uh, What's your current um, guitar of choice then for for flat picking? Uh, well, there's two. Uh, there's an old guitar that of Nancy's that she played on the road when the two of us would did the duet for ten straight years, just the two of us. Uh, yeah. And everybody always wants to talk about all the stars I played with, but I enjoyed playing with her more than anybody. Uh-huh. She used an old uh, 1928 uh, 0045 Martin guitar. I like to play that old guitar a lot. Oh, the 00. And then nice. I had 0045 12-fret Martin yeah. 1928. Yeah. And then I have a 1938 14-fret triple O. 42 Martin guitar that I like a lot. And then I have several old Gibsons of various natures. Yeah. Do you, what kind of Gibsons do you prefer? Well, I have a Century, a Progress model, uh-huh. an LC, and I have that I like, a 1933, and I have a, a Nick Lucas special about 1929, and I have a 1937 J35. Oh, okay. And what's the difference between a 35 and a 45? The 35 is earlier. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've, got a, I've got a J50 from the early 50s that I love. Yeah, the, the 45 proceeded. They started off with just called it a jumbo in 1934, made it for two years yeah. as a jumbo. Okay. Then they, then they redesigned it a little bit and called it a J35, sold uh-huh. it for $35. Okay. And then... Yeah. Then they followed that with the J45 and 50 then. Okay. Chronology. And I played I th- what I think was one of your guitars w- over at Dave Rawlings's place. I think he'd bought one that you were selling. He's got the last old D18 that I had. Yeah, oh, okay. Right. And, and he was showing me how, I think, I think you had lowered the low E string to be like, Spaced wider than the other strings? Is that true? And is that something that I you move do? them out? Yeah, I try to make them wider. Just the low E string. Well, no, all of them. If uh, if the fingerboard will accommodate it, I like to spread them out as wide as they'll go uh-huh. on the bridge. And those old guitars are wider anyway, right? On right. the bridge spacing, but I even fudge that a little bit. You know, yeah. I take them on out to the side, the two outside strings, and then space everything accordingly. And does that uh, does that kind of emphasize some of the low end of of those low range chords for bluegrass and stuff, or what's the reason for that? 
Well, and the reason for it partly is I just like that much playing space. It's just the feel of it. Yeah. And then it also adds, I think, the wider the strings are apart, a theory of mine is that it gives you a little more separation on the notes. If the strings are real close together, the notes sympathetically sort of ring together more. Right. Uh, I think you get more separation if the strings are spaced as wide apart as they can be. Okay. And what about... I do that same thing on dobros, too. Oh, do you? Okay. I spam the dobro bridge out as wide as it'll go, too. Um, What about dobros? Do you have any special ones that that you really like playing? I have two. I have two old ones. I don't like the new ones. Yeah. I like the old-fashioned sound. If uh-huh. I were Jerry Douglas or somebody, that'd be one thing, but I like the other sound for what I play. I have a Model 27, uh-huh. um, which is like the one Oswald played all those years, okay. and then I have a Model 45, if they call it, and which is a spruce top. What era would those instruments be from? All those would be... Uh, very early 30s, I guess. Okay, and have you had those since way back, or are they recent? Oh, I've had one of I've had one of them for forty odd years, forty fifty years. Yeah. yeah, would that have been the one that you were playing with Johnny Cash a lot? No, I had another one that I was playing in that era that I don't own. Okay, um, so the dobro was really the main thing you were playing with him, but you played guitar with Cash as well, right? Oh yeah, I played guitar, fiddle probably. And- yeah, 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 guitar and dobro mostly. Okay, so was playing with Cash the 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 um, uh, the gateway to you playing like on Nashville Skyline and and other sessions and things like that? Because that was a that was a big record, obviously. That you yeah were yeah that's that's yeah through the producer, not to be confused with the name I've used earlier, Bob Johnson. Yeah, the other Bob, Bob Johnson. Johnston. Yeah, uh, the producer through him. Yeah, and the Cash work. Yeah, and then that led to the Dylan sessions and things. That Nashville Skyline session, that was done at that same studio that you were just talking about, right? That's right. Yeah. And do you remember much about uh, getting called in and, and doing those sessions? Because that's quite a quite an epic one. Oh, just that we, we got called and went in and did it. You know, it was just a, it was a gig, you know. Yeah. Were you familiar but, with uh, Were you familiar with Dylan's material at that point, or was he kind of uh, someone? I was familiar with him, but not you know familiar on the level that uh, it later became. You know, yeah, I was not not totally familiar with everything he had done. No, uh-huh. and so I'm just curious, like as a session musician in those days, did playing on a record like that that was a big commercial success, did that have an impact on you as a as a session musician? Were people calling you more all of a sudden, or was it not really like that? Oh, I think it had some. Um, I, I never really considered myself, even though I did a good many sessions, I never considered myself to really be one of the session musicians. Right. Uh, I was more of a special thing that they, if they, you know, wanted something more traditional or... Or as I like to say, I was a token folky, you know. Or something. Uh-huh. But uh, I never considered myself to be one of those mainline session players. Uh, I didn't have that much grounding in commercial music. They all played rock and roll and yeah. blues and all that stuff. And I didn't do that at all. So I was more of a specialized thing. Like at that point in the late 60s, were you doing a, a lot of stuff in Nashville, like on Music Row, though? I did a few things. I can't even remember all of it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I ended up playing with other people too. You know, yeah, for sure. Later on, playing with Christopherson and John yeah. Hartford. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that Hartford record. Um, Aeroplane is such a 
amazing, influential record as well. What led to playing in, with his band? Because you played with him quite a bit for a few years. I played with John about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I played with him when he first started the band. Yeah. And then I played with him, just the two of us, then after he had disbanded the group. Yeah. Then I played about six months as, as just accompanying him. Uh-huh. And that Aeroplane record, was that done in Nashville as well? Yeah, that was done at uh, the Glazer Brothers studio. Okay. Um, Because John was a writer for his his writing, publishing house was the Glazer Brothers. Oh, I see. Okay. So you went into the studio there. Yeah, And was that that record done quite quickly and live as well? It was done live. Yeah, it was done live, yeah. There's some non-traditional stuff on there, like electric bass and things like that. Was that... Something that you guys had kind of. Randy Scruggs played electric bass on on that on the record with the group, yeah. And was that something you were touring a bunch and kind of developing the sound of? Because that band has a real sound that was pretty special. That's John had just hired us as the band, Tut Taylor, Vassar Clements, and myself. Yeah. Uh, we had been playing for fun in Nashville, just at houses around, you know, jam sessions, and I had played on a television special of Hartford's in California. The first producer of the cash show, Bill Carruthers, took me out to Los Angeles mm-hmm. to play in the orchestra with a John, on a John Hartford special. Okay. And that, that way I got to know John, and uh, then we kind of started playing together, jamming for fun in Nashville. Yeah. And uh, then he decided to disband his group, which was the Iron Mountain Depot, yep. and uh, hire Vassar Tut and myself, and we became the Aerial Plane Band, yep. and, or the Dobrolic Plectoral Society, we loosely <laughs> called ourselves in Nashville, and uh, then Randy Scruggs was hired to do bass on the record, and we played on the road without a bass. Oh, really? Okay. And were you guys swapping instruments at all? Like, with, were you and Tut Taylor swapping, or was it just you were playing guitar and Tut was on dobro? Oh, yeah, I, I doubled off on mandolin. Okay. Some on, on there, mostly, and Tut played mandolin some. Oh, okay. Uh, and that band lasted a good couple of years out on the road? No, about, a, well, yeah, a year and a half, or less, a little less than two years. Yeah. Another record that I first heard um, of yours that was a big one for me, I, I remember coming to Nashville once in the 90s, and I actually on, on a trip with, with Dave Rawlings and on a bus, and he turned to me with a, wa- a Sony Walkman that had uh, Blake and Rice, the first Blake and Rice record on it. And I'd, I, that was the first time I'd ever heard you. And um, he said, hey, you got to check this out. And I was just kind of getting into traditional music and bluegrass. and. Uh-huh. That that record for me was was a real eye opener as far as acoustic music and and guitar playing because it was so bare and so expo- uh-huh. exposed and you guys play so well together. I'm just wondering how the sessions with Tony Rice came about and w- whether you guys worked on you know arrangements for guitar really hard or if it was just a a simple process. Well, it's pretty simple. I think the first first uh, playing that I ever did. Well, Tony was again at the flat picking festival uh-huh. in Winfield, and he he came in later and played some with Doc and Dan and I. And now that was my first uh, experience with him. And then uh, when we we Nancy and I were in California playing at the McCabe's, I think it was yep. uh, out there in, uh, in LA. was it Santa Monica? Santa Monica, yeah, yeah. And uh, 
Tony suggested that uh, no, maybe we're, I'm getting that confused because it wouldn't have been right. We must have been playing at the music hall in San Francisco rather mm-hmm. than we did play at McKay's, but I think I should say we were playing. And she and I were playing at the, the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco, and Tony was around or something, and suggested we go out to his house after a gig one night, and we followed him out and struck up friendship from uh-huh. there on. And, and he suggests he said, "Well, we'll make a record sometime," and. Uh, we didn't do it for a long time, uh-huh. and finally it got suggested some way, and uh, we did it. But no, we just did it off the off cuff. The cuff I mean, yeah. We did songs. We decided rather than we than try to make a guitar instrumental record, we just you know do what we wanted to do, which was some songs and things, and uh, that way we could kind of meet on more common ground since. He was not as traditionally oriented as I was. Right. You know? Yeah. So yeah. We just did it that way. There's enough difference in your guys' styles where it's where it's nice and separate, but it's like it would be really hard, I think, to make a, re- a record like that that's successful as that one is, because um, you know having two guitars together just doesn't always mesh, but that one sure does. And we made a second one, I guess. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. that. Yeah, I love that one, too. The first it one. had more musicians. It, Nancy right. was on it, and then yeah. Mark Schatz. Yeah. And Doc was on that one as a guest. Right. Know. So, yeah, that was number two, I guess. Do you keep in touch with Tony? Like, I know he's not doing particularly I haven't. Well, but... I haven't been in touch with him in years. I uh, should be, but I haven't. Uh-huh. Uh, I've heard lots of things concerning his conditions and everything, yeah. but... If, I just kind of stayed out of it at this point, which might have been not have been the right thing to do, but it's what I've done. Yeah. I, I don't know what the situation is with him. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I've heard various things, and none of which I'm sure are true. It was always very sketchy what I yeah. was able to garner. Yeah. Just jumping forward a, a bit, um, the Old Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack was obviously a huge one. Um, have you Had you done much film soundtrack work ever? Like, had that come up ever where you where you did soundtrack stuff? Uh, I played on some. Uh, I played on uh, one Little False and Big Holes. It was one I played on. Uh-huh. I don't know. Carl Perkins was involved. John was done with that. Most, I think, maybe more Carl Perkins. I can't remember, but okay. did that. And then I did a, a, a movie with Johnny uh, that we played on. Uh, that was a... Gregory Peck movie, uh, Flesh and Blood, or something like that. Okay, and, and then I did did uh, walk. The, I've done Walk the Line, right, Johnny of Cash movie. Yeah, and we did the Coal Mountain movie. Nancy and I both did that. Uh, we're on the soundtrack some of Coal Mountain, and then and then of course, Old Brother, Where Art Thou? Did that. So those those ones all all kind of have the same theme, where where it's kind of like you're playing pre-composed music, I think, more than actual scoring the the film, right? Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Um, were, were those situations where, like, had you seen the movie, or were you just supplying music for the for the soundtrack? We were just, we were just supplying music for the track. Uh, sometimes I've been shown a clip, you know, where I had to score something, where they ran it across the screen, just a clip. Yeah, with a bar on either side, and you start when the bar comes on the screen. Right. Yeah. And when the bar goes off the screen, you're done. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And some of them we just did it in front, you know, like 
you know, we had no concept of what the movie was, and we just were directed to do certain things, and we just did them in a recording studio like making a record. Yeah, right. So, like, um, Cold Mountain, was that done that way? Yes. Um, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, was it, were, you guys, were you guys recording the music for that before the movie was even made? Basically so on that one, yeah. Yeah, a lot, most of that, I think, was done before. Or, yeah, in front, and then they built the movie more around that music, I think, really, on yeah. that one. What was your involvement with T-Bone Burnett? Like, were you guys mining through tons and tons of old traditional material to find the right songs, or was was he just kind of giving you songs to perform? He basically just would tell you what he wanted, uh, and I I credit uh, my being on the record, basically, in the long run, being used the the my sunshine cut mm-hmm. uh and then of course i did a little instrumental thing on man of constant sorrow on that record right but i i sort of think that you know that he lent pretty heavily on gillian welsh yeah and and their knowledge of people and i i'm very much i think that she's responsible for my being involved in that oh, okay so she recommended getting you in on it? And... I think that she probably did. I don't know that for total fact, but I know she was involved in telling him, you know, and involved with him, and, and she was around, and uh, I think that uh, probably she was influential in getting me involved, and they just called me up for it uh-huh. and said, would I come to Nashville and record something for this and told me what the premise of the movie was, and okay. I said, well, I don't want to come to Nashville. <laughs> for a session right now. Yeah. Because I just assumed it was a regular one-shot recording session. Right. And then they later called back that week and, and made me uh, made a cash offer I couldn't refuse. Okay. So I came over and did it. Yeah. And I think I did, you know. I ended up having two tracks on a very big-selling record, so yeah. you know, I can't complain. Yeah, no kidding. I, I don't think anybody foresaw the success of that soundtrack or the movie to the extent that it had but nobody, nobody had any idea uh and and uh, the musicians people involved got more out of that record than i think they would ever get out of another one i don't yeah. think we ever got that good a deal after that yeah anything yeah did, you know by any means so how much did you know about the film when you were doing it and obviously that was done before the movie was made but um did you not know- much Okay. Just the, that it was based on the Odyssey, you know, which yeah. seemed weird and all that. So, yeah, we didn't really know. I didn't really know what it was, no. Um, now, doing that has led to you working again with T-Bone Burnett. I know at least on, um, like, I don't know if he was involved in the Cold Mountain soundtrack. Was he? Yeah, yeah he was Cold, Cold Mountain and, okay. uh, and uh, Walk the Line. Right, okay. So, uh, Walk the Line, was that done in a similar way where you were just uh, involved yeah. in the... Okay. Yeah, yeah, we just did, did that in the studio. Yeah. They asked me who I thought would be good to play the electric guitar part, the uh-huh. Luther Perkins part. Yeah. And I told them Jamie Hartford, John Hartford's son. Oh, okay. And that's who who did it. And then Jack Clements and I played acoustic yeah. guitars on it. And, and then they had, uh, I think they had Jay Belarus, although he yeah. was involved in some things on drums. And then Nancy, my wife, did the scratch vocals for oh, okay. that particular movie for Reese Witherspoon's vocal parts. Like she did some of the scratch vocals, you know, and then yep. they would 
take them off, and Reese Witherspoon would dub them on. Okay. And were you recreating any of your old tracks for that, or was it all just new music that you were doing for the movie? It was just all, it was old stuff, some of it, you know, cash stuff, but it was all just, yeah, we all just, we just did it, you know, and in the style that, you know, that we figured it should be in, you know, the sound. Uh Uh-huh. And, of course, Jack Clement, was. that's another help. You know, Jack and I were together there on the guitar acoustics. And, uh, right, right. Uh, Jack was around through the whole cash trip. And yeah, he knew I've that. been around through a lot of it, too. So Yeah, no kidding. And you also worked with T-Bone again on the Raising Sand record. What was your... Did Did you play... Oh, some, yeah, I'd forgotten that one, yeah. Um, what did, did you play guitar on that or Dobro, or what was your involvement on I that I only record? played guitar on two cuts, I think, on that. Okay. And were you out in L.A. to do that, or did you do those in Nashville? No, we did those the same studio in Nashville. We did that at the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I'm not thinking right now. The one we did all those in. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know oh, what it's... Belmont there. This is Ocean Way, probably, right? No, no, it's... Uh, oh, golly, I should be able to... I know that as well as I know my own name. <laughs> sound something, I think. Oh, Sound Emporium. Sound Emporium, yeah. Right, okay. Right. Um, and was that like full band? Like was that Jay Belrose and 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 Robert Plant and all that? Was they were all there tracking live for those sessions? Or they were there. We, as I recall, the we didn't get any complete live vocals. They did some vocals, but they didn't get any complete live vocals. I think they must have gone back in and, and like redub, you know, worked on their vocals. Then, right, right. After they got the musical tracks. Yeah. But I was only involved in a couple of things uh-huh. actively there because a lot of that was really, you know, they had some guitar, electric guitar on a loop and all that kind of, some of that kind of stuff going on. And, yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I was involved in it. But. Yeah. Coming at it from a traditionalist point of view, like you are, do you enjoy the process of playing on a, on a, like a rock record like that or like with drums and and things that you're not used to playing with in a traditional sense? Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't fall out against it. It's not what I'm used to, yeah. by any means. I'm, as a rule, I don't play with drums, no. Yeah. I had another record that we're not mentioning, I don't know. We did a did a record, the J. Belarus Connection uh, rings the bell on it. He played drums on it. But we did a record... Um, of uh, the the Johnny Cash, you know, the original record I was on with him, uh-huh. the Bitter Tears album. Yep. We did a remake of that record. You did? Yes. Uh-huh. It's called something about uh, Look to the Wind, I think is the name of it. Uh-huh. I forget, and it's maybe on some kind of a Sony label or Sony or something. But Nancy uh, and myself yeah. and uh, Emmy Lou Harris. Uh-huh. And Gillian and David and various people did cuts on that. Um, and I don't think that record ever got a hell of a lot of mileage. And it should have because it was a good record. And I know they banned the first one, you know, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And they made this one very lovingly uh-huh. uh, to go with a book that this Franconi or somebody had written about the original session. Okay. And uh, that record, I've never read a review on it. I've never read anything, any press on it. Uh, it was just like we did it, and it was gone. Wow. And it was on, on a major label, you see, basically, too. Who was producing that session? 
Um, I can't remember his name. It was someone I had not worked with. He's another guitar player, okay. I think. Um, but I can't call his name up right now. So it was, it's remaking the entire record, every song? Well, but I don't with... know if it's the entire record, but it's a, a lot of material, if not the entire record. Uh, like, uh, I did Indian drums. That was the cut I did. And then Nancy did the uh, Talking Leaves recitation uh-huh. on it as a separate solo piece. She did that. And like I say, then Emmy Lou, I guess, might have done one. She did backup uh-huh. on some of the stuff, and Gillian, and then Gillian and David did one. Yeah. And then I think Christofferson did one, and okay. I forget who, who else. Dennis Krauss played bass. Yeah. And uh, somebody from New York played piano that I just never had met before. Uh huh. So that was the gist of that. And then there's another record that T-Bone was involved in. T-Bone not involved in this one that I'm talking about, but one that we did get involved in with him was the uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Right, yeah. Which is the movie that my wife Nancy was in. Oh, what was... What was she in that movie? I didn't realize she acted. In she it. played. She played the folk singer that got dissed in the end of it, Elizabeth Hobby. Really? Okay. The old heart player. Yeah. Right. Okay. I remember that. I didn't. I, I don't know why. And then we did what I did on lead up to. We did a soundtrack version. There was a soundtrack record for that movie. Yeah. yeah. And then we recorded as cut with Nancy doing the same song, but then with the band. Uh, we rec- at the Sound Emporium, yeah. we recorded uh, The Storms Are on the Ocean mm-hmm. with Gillian and David and myself and T-Bone on guitar also. Okay. And, uh, and Nancy is the lead vocalist on that. We did that then in Nashville at the Sound Emporium. Oh, cool. So that's on the non-such label, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And was that a similar kind of situation, working with the Coen brothers and T-Bone, where you were doing music first and the movie came later, or how was that? No, we, we, we did this we did this particular cut that Nancy did after, I think, after the, the movie, or about the time it was coming out, as I recall. And I think some of the other stuff probably was the same way, you know, the Punch Brothers and uh, yeah, yeah. the Milk Carton Kids. So it's all those people on that record. Right. And us, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a that's a cool record, too, for sure. Um, it didn't, I guess it didn't really have the traction that the O Brother thing did, but... but Not hardly, apparently. Yeah, but, uh, but cool nonetheless. Yeah. I think it's a great thing to have been done, though, because... It's a, certainly that movie is a documentation of a time, yeah. you know, that a lot, a lot of people really don't know what went on back there. And, and we can look at it here at home sometimes and say, yeah, that's damn near the story of our life. Right. Know, things we did, <laughs> yeah. you know, playing the folk circuit and everything, you know, yeah. traveling around for nothing nearly and tuning up in kitchens and all this sure. horse shit. You know? <laughs> uh, I'm interested to know what you think of, of all the revivalist kind of stuff and the interest in traditional music these days. Um, you know, bands and, and some great bands too. Uh, Milk Carton Kids, come, you mentioned, come to mind and Punch Brothers. Um, but there's also casts of thousands of, of other young people playing traditional string band music these days. Do you think that's um, uh, an important cycle that's coming around again? Or what do you think of all that? Well, I'm glad they're doing it. You know, I, I, I am really really pleased to know that it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's important. I think it's very important. 
I think it needs to be more important than it is. You know, I uh, I don't want to sound uh, in any way moldy fig or whatever, but uh, I do feel that uh, there should be some counterbalance to the bluegrass world mm-hmm. uh, out there. You know, bluegrass is sort of genericized string music now. Right. And it has become more commercial, and I don't fall out with with bluegrass for that either. Uh-huh. I mean, we're all in it to make, have been in it to make a living. Uh-huh. And I can understand, and, and they've crossed over a lot. You have people that are crossing over more and more into country music or whatever that you want to call it. There's not much country music around these days. Yeah. Thank God for bluegrass. It is one of the right. few <laughs> things that has some elements of country music left in it. Yeah, yeah. But they tend to, some of them tend to go more commercial, and I'm all for that if that's what they need to do professionally and want to do. Yeah. And they make some great music. There's some great players sure. out there. Sure. But then I would like to see some of the other side of the coin in in the folk world, you know, some of that come to the top a little more too, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's room for that as well, you know. And yeah, I think every you're time right. somebody you mentioned string music now, they immediately just immediately flash in their mind bluegrass. Right. You know, and, right. and that's all well and good, but that's not really accurate. Yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not knocking bluegrass, don't get me wrong. I love bluegrass. Yeah. But I'm just saying There's more to the, it. Than it's that. a generic thing. It's getting to be generic. Um so uh just coming back to your new record for a sec, um I noticed that song Stay Down on the Farm. It's a great little tune near the end or maybe it's the last song on the record i can't remember it is the last one right and it it it's sort of uh um it it's sort of about feeling like you've said what you had to say and has some finality to it um i'm just wondering if you, if you think about stopping playing and recording music or is that just a fleeting feeling that you had that that brought on a song and that passed i sort of feel like that this might be the last full solo record that I make. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I think so. Maybe uh, I'm tired of uh, doing it. Uh, it's it's a it's a very hard thing to define. We mm-hmm. retired from the road seven in 2007. My wife right. and I retired off the road. Yeah. And uh, so we've only done just sporadic gigs close to home that we could come back home that night. You know, uh-huh. I haven't. Stayed away from home. I haven't been to Nashville, I don't think, in three years, for example. Yeah. Uh, I just don't care for the climate of it. Uh, It's just gotten harder. We did it so long and everything. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like that the political climate in the country, we feel that, is just not conducive to music. Yep. Uh, There's been too much war. There's been too much everything. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm pretty liberal in my views. My wife and I are both, I guess, to be considered that. Mm-hmm. And we just feel that the, the we don't necessarily want to be entertaining. We're, we're not that entertaining. We were more musicians. We never were real entertaining uh, from day one. I <laughs> and, and I feel it less now. Plus, I've just uh-huh. gotten old enough that, you know, I, I feel that I've had a, some sickness the last four years ago. I got pretty sick. Uh-huh. And uh, after that, I, uh, you know, I think I play and do all right for my age, but I don't want to keep inflicting myself on recordings. 
Oh man, I think you're you're in fine form. It's like the new record sounds amazing. I think for what that's well, I appreciate that. But I mean, you know, I have to work around a lot, you know, Uh to do a record. You know, uh, I'm time this record gets out, I'll be seventy nine years old. Uh huh. And uh, that, you know, when you get to up in that, you know, the, your hands don't work as good. And yeah, I Ever understand. since I've been sick, my voice doesn't work as good. I'm being very truthful about it. I just don't feel that uh, people need to hear people on record until it just gets so creaky that they can't do anything, you know. Oh, man, there is there is some, you know, it's some deep, deep shit that happens that you've got channeling on there that's wonderful. So, you know. There's definitely people interested out there. It's just a matter of, yeah, whether you feel like you've got it in you or not, I guess. Well, if if I wrote a bunch of songs again and, can, you know, was sitting around here on a, a dozen songs or something, then I yeah. might feel differently about it. <laughs> okay. it would, you know, but right now I'm not. Well, I hope so. I hope, so. I hope we get more from you. But it's a wonderful record, and um, I'm excited for people to hear it. And so will you well, do, I appreciate it. Will, will you do any shows when the record is out, or are you... Do you strictly none to not... none to promote it? No, uh-huh. uh huh, and nothing in Nashville, obviously. No, no. Okay. Well, I do. I do hope I get a chance to see you. I've never had a chance to see you live. Um, you know, I I kind of came to the Norman Blake party late because I'm of the age where uh-huh. I, I just I you know I knew about you and things like that, but but I just never had the chance to see you. Um, but I I I hope the opportunity comes up one day. But I I, I appreciate where you're at and and understand. <laughs> well, I hope I hope so too. We still play a little. We do. We did about a half a dozen gigs this past summer. Oh, okay. Uh, around within a hundred hundred and twenty five miles of home here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so you know if you it can happen. keep watch on us, you might see something. But it'd be in that. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Norman, for talking to me today. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and and uh, talking about some of this stuff. And and uh, I, I love the new record. And um, I wish you the best. And and hope we get to uh, meet you one of these days. Certainly so. Okay. Thanks so much, man. Mm-hmm. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Oh yeah, that was my conversation with Norman Blake. What an honor it was to have him on the show and have him share some of his stories with us. I sure hope you enjoyed it as much as I did bringing it to you. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.